Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Hill Country Conservative. I'm your host, Sebastian. And I'm Tripp. And sadly, Christian Cavazos couldn't be with us today, but we did bring guest Judge Kevin Patrick Yeary from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And uh, uh, your, Mr. Yeary, why don't you take it away for a second? Oh, okay. Hi. Well, my name's Kevin Yeary. I'm one of your nine judges on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, it's the Supreme Court of our state for all criminal matters. The Supreme Court of Texas uh, doesn't hear criminal matters, um, and our court doesn't hear civil matters. So we, we are both your Supreme Courts. Uh, it's just that we do different work. Over at the Court of Criminal Appeals, we're the final authority for everything criminal, uh, including you know theft cases, assault cases, murder cases, capital murder cases, anything involving the death penalty, those types of cases make their way to our court in one way or another. Uh, I've been on your court for uh, about six years now. I was first elected in 2014. Uh, our elections are statewide, so everybody in Texas uh, has an opportunity to vote for the judges on both the Supreme Court of Texas and the Court of Criminal Appeals, since we are your Supreme Courts. Um, so in 2014, I was elected. 2015, I joined the Court of Criminal Appeals as one of its judges. Uh, and then in November, I was uh, fortunately re-elected, sorry for the noise in the background, re-elected again for another six-year term. We, we do serve six-year terms on the appellate courts in Texas. So everybody who is an appellate judge in Texas who is elected is elected for a six-year term. Um, that um, My particular election cycle follows along with uh, uh, our U.S. Senator John Cornyn. He, he, Senator, U.S. Senators also have six-year terms. So I was first elected when he was re-elected the last time. And then, of course, he was up again this time. So, so was I. We're on that cycle. Um, I am from Laredo, Texas. I grew up in Laredo, born and bred Texan, seventh generation or fifth generation, depending upon how you calculate that. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Susie. She's a pediatrician and we have four daughters and we live out here in the Texas Hill Country. So when you talked about coming onto the Hill Country conservative, I thought, well, I'm a pretty conservative guy too. <laughs> so it sounds like a good idea for me. Uh, and I'm, and uh, I'm glad to be here. So. Well, we thank you for coming on. You know, this is a, this is really exciting for us as, as, as our show gets bigger and bigger, I find myself talking to, you know, more and more important people. And it's just, it's crazy when I'm, when I was graduating high school, thinking, what was I going to do after, you know, I knew I was going to law school. But so is you know, millions of other students around the world. But sitting here now talking to one of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals judges, and yesterday we were, or not yesterday, a couple of days ago, we were talking to some space lawyers from D.C., Colorado, and, and California. I look forward to listening to that podcast. I, I saw that it was on your, a link to it was on your Facebook page, and I thought, I got to follow that and see what those guys were talking about. Yeah, it, it was pretty interesting. You know, I, I told one of my teachers that I was interested in space law, and they asked me if I was joking. <laughs> I said, no, not really. Like, like I, I feel like with the privatization of space and everything, we're going to be seeing a lot more space lawyers, and it's probably not at all what most people think it's going to be. I said, I was waiting for the day that uh, we'd see a billboard up, and it's like, did you get injured in a space transport crash? Call, <laughs> call the Texas Space Hammer. You know, <laughs> I kind of, I, I kind of want to get into some some things. You know, this being my first year of law school, I I I, uh, I got introduced to a whole new world of ideology and theory, and mostly pertaining to law. And the one that kind of hit me the most was the death penalty. And as conservatives, of course, we all agree. Mostly, I would say most conservatives agree with the death penalty and and eye for an eye and everything. But I recently read a theory about how, as conservatives, are we okay with the government having this much power to kill us if, if they deem us, you know, criminal enough? If, if they say that we've done something so bad that we as a society agree that the government should have the power to just end our lives and play to God. So I kind of wanted to get your, your position on that and what you think. Well, you know, as, as a judge, I don't really, uh, I, I try, one of our ethical obligations is not to decide a case before it comes before us. But I do have personal views, you know, and 
And just like everybody else, I'm a Catholic and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't really, I wouldn't personally favor killing somebody just for the heck of it. You know, I, I think that uh, I'm glad we have rules in place and just seems like just about every, you know, five or six years, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, over the course of my career, it seems like every five or six years or so, they interpose a yet another restriction, you know, on the exercise of the death penalty in America. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, just a few examples are, uh, you know, when I was first licensed as an attorney, uh, if you were 17 years old and committed a capital murder, you could be executed for your crime. Uh, now the Supreme Court said, no, you know, not unless you're over 18 when you commit your crime. So uh, uh, another example is that uh, when I first became an, a licensed as a lawyer, um, there was nothing restricting the states from carrying out an execution of someone who was um, diagnosed as being intellectually disabled, or as they formerly called that same condition, mentally retarded. Uh, you know, that though the Supreme Court of the United States has now uh, weighed in and said, no, you can't, you can't do that. Of course, what happens is, is that uh, every time they weigh in, they not only foreclose certain things, but they create more questions, you know, uh, just an, as an example, uh, when they when they interpose this regulation saying that, or not, not a regulation, but when they wrote the opinion saying that uh, it was, uh, it, what did they, I'm trying to think of the exact word they used, um, that it was uh, immunity. They said, if you are, uh, if you are intellectually disabled, you are immune from the death penalty. Well, that was kind of a new kind of a statement. What, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> you know, immune from, and, and, and to this day, I'm not sure that I completely know the answer to that. At least the Supreme Court hasn't, you know, utterly defined the parameters of what it means to be immune. Um, in addition, you know, we, we, we are still continuing to struggle, I think, with the concept of who actually is intellectually disabled. Um, the legislature in all the years, and it's been many years, I think it was 2002 when the Supreme Court wrote the opinion saying that you cannot execute a person with, with intellectual disability. And in all that time, the Texas legislature still has yet to pass a law uh, telling us how to decide who is an intellectually disabled person in the context of the death penalty, right? Uh, I think that several uh, judges have written side opinions in cases uh, urging the legislature to do that, but you know they haven't taken it, taken them up on the offer. Uh, you know who knows? Maybe this legislative session will be different, and we'll get some sort of a legislative definition. But even when they do that, even when the legislature does weigh in and provide a, a definition for intellectual disability, uh, the there will still be questions to be answered. You know, the Supreme Court of the United States might come back and say. Well, we don't like that definition. They've already done that once to our court. Uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals, when, when this ruling first came down and the legislature did not act right away, the Court of Criminal Appeals established uh, some rules for deciding who would be intellectually disabled. Um, but, you know, that we percolated along in Texas with that sort of definition for a while until the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, no. Uh, we're gonna. We don't like that. We're gonna overrule that standard, and we're not gonna tell you, you know, how to change it. So we, we we've struggled again with some of that, and and I think we're still working on, uh, in a on a case by case basis, figuring out what that that answer is going to be. And so you know we do we do make reference in our opinions to um, looking at the medical the, the the medical standards for making those kinds of determinations. But who knows? <laughs> That's my point. The U.S. Supreme Court changes the game. I have a, a colleague uh, who unfortunately is going to be compelled to retire at the end of this year from the court uh, because uh, he says that he has reached the age of presumptive senility, <laughs> but he has not senile at all. He's really a smart, very, very intelligent guy named uh, Judge Kiesler. And Judge Kiesler says the Supreme Court does not overrule the Court of Criminal Appeals very often. But when they do, it's usually because they've changed the law. 
<laughs> you know, if they put the target is one place, we shoot at the target and then it gets moved a little bit. So uh, it's been known to happen. Right. The death I feel like I'm is... spring, so I'm going to take a breath and let you all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you mentioned uh, you were Catholic as well. I'm I'm Catholic as well, and I know Seb's. We've got a, we got the trifecta of Catholics right now. <laughs> um, but that the um, the death penalty is one of the areas where I think I have actually changed my mind over the mm -hmm. course of uh, my life. Because as going into college and stuff, I was like, yeah, murderers they forfeited their right to life so by taking someone else's. So it's that kind of thing. But as a as a Catholic, and as as I've gotten more in touch with like the Catholic church and faith and everything, it's, that's one of the areas where I've, I'm a little more on the fence now. I don't know where I fully stand with the death penalty because it's, it, it is one of those big, like long-term, like big picture ideas that I just don't know. I'm not enough of a theologian or a legal scholar to really know where I stand on it. Just, it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, yeah, that, that serial killer who, slaughtered three families if anyone deserves to die it's him but then i'm like but does the should we be doing that yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just that's one of the few areas where i'm really i've started changing my mind probably i don't know where i'll end up but once i have kids i might be like no give me the nine millimeter myself i'll do it but <laughs> i it's one of those few areas where i'm really on the fence right now yeah. oh well you know it, it's uh, as at as a judge, I don't take a sort of, my position isn't something that controls my, my personal feelings about it. Let me say, right. not, do not control how I make decisions about the legality of it. Instead, right. what I do is I look at the constitution, I look at the laws of our state and I ask myself, well, uh, you know, did those provisions, what do they do vis-a-vis -vis restricting or enabling the death penalty as a penalty available in Texas? And, uh, and, and leave it at that. Because, I mean, if you start weighing in with, if we all start weighing in with our own moral views on the courts, that would be a real mess. It's already a mess enough as it is. So, you know, even the Catholic Church, since we brought in the Catholic Church to the discussion, is, has, seems to be evolving its position on the death penalty. When I was, you know, a young lawyer thinking about becoming a prosecutor, I remember weighing the, the possibility that I may uh, at some point become involved in a death penalty case. And I remember seeing that the catechism said one thing, you know, and having that give me some, I guess, comfort or confidence that, you know, the church was, you know, not necessarily in favor of executing lots of people, but didn't find it to be, you know, morally wrong in every case, um, at least at that stage of, of my life. And now the recent Pope has made some declarations that are uh, it seems, you know, can arguably be interpreted wildly differently than what the catechism said <laughs> when I first became a prosecutor. So who knows where, where those are all going. Uh, I, but I, you know, regardless of where our faith is, is informing us as to what we ought to, what type of positions we ought to take when we have a opportunity to take public positions, which judges don't usually do, then, uh, you know, those are the types of things that I would be concerned about if I were say, a legislator, right? And I was, you know, trying to convince people to, to make the law be what it ideally ought to be rather than, you know, right. what well, it is today. Yeah, as a, as a judge, your job is to interpret the text and the law and apply it, not change it. Well, that's what I believe. I think that <laughs> it's my understanding there are many judges out there who think that their role is a quite different one than, than the way I perceive it, so... I'm yeah, not going to shout out. Country, I'm not going to shout out Houston on that one, but we all know. Who. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so oh, it's it's great. <laughs> in college, I did read an article about a different interpretation of the separation of church and state, where it was meant to be more of the populace separating church and state. So you could be politically one thing, and you can be religiously a different thing, and that was supposed to help legislatures and judges and politicians say. Well, okay, it makes economical and societal sense to commit the death or to uh, have the death penalty. Death penalty. Yeah. yeah, and it, it it I religiously I find it abhorrent, and it's finding the balance between those two that would make the nation prosper at its you know ultimate level. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just I always thought that was interesting. 
Well, you know, I mean, I, I can think of very few people uh, off the top of my head that, that would say that they should not be able to execute another person if that person were attempting to kill either them or someone they loved at that moment. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, the self-defense itself is it's a death penalty, if you will, it, when when deadly force is authorized. Uh, so, you know, circumstances of every case are incredibly important to consider in every case. And so mm -hmm. uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't really, uh, certainly we, we can wax philosophic all we want about what we think the best or most ideal way to, uh, to, to sort of cre create a legal environment for that to be dealt with. Um, but, uh, but ultimately in each case, we just have to consider the unique facts of that case uh, apply the existing law and right. just see where it comes out. You know, that's the, that's the best way uh, for us to work. And, and, you know, the other thing is about, um, about sort of the moral implications of following the law as a judge, you know, I remember part of, part of my sort of self answer to my, to my moral concerns when I became a prosecutor were that at least as an appellate lawyer, you know, we're not answering whether the death penalty is good or not good. <laughs> What we are doing is examining discrete issues that arise in the context of appellate litigation. Like, for example, is the death penalty, uh, does it violate the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment? So we're measuring, again, the death penalty itself, not against whether it's morally good or morally bad. We're measuring it instead against whether something about the Eighth Amendment <laughs> prohibits it. And, you know, as long as I can, I feel like if I answer that question honestly, then I'm not really saying one way or the other, whether I think it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just being honest about my, my answer to the question uh, about the, the, the constitutionality of the death penalty, given the discrete issue that's been presented. Um, so I don't know if that helps you understand what my thinking about it is yeah. anymore, but. Yeah, the, the speaking on the Eighth Amendment a little bit, that's always been to me, the trickiest amendment to sort of uh, square away with an originalist type of perspective, because it's what is cruel and unusual does seem to evolve over time. And so moving from an originalist perspective, are we thinking of what was cruel and unusual at the time the Eighth Amendment was written, or should we adopt a more I guess it would be living constitution kind of to say what is cruel and unusual to us now. Right. And, and so the eighth amendment has always been one where I'm like, well, that's, I'm, I'm not smart enough to deal with this. That's that I'll leave that to the professionals like, like, like you and uh, Sebastian in a couple years. I'm not dealing with that. Yeah. I'll I give you my perspective. Go ahead, Sebastian. I'm I, sorry. Say, I find it funny. He thinks I'm going to be a professional in a couple of years. <laughs> You might be. In fact, today, just this morning, I, I swore in a, a new member of the bar, a young lady uh, who had passed the bar exam. So you may be there. Right. <laughs> Soon. You never know. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Um, but judicial philosophy, uh, as Harold brings up, is uh, it's an important issue for every judge to struggle with, because if you don't have or if you refuse to adopt some form of judicial philosophy, then, you know, what you're really doing is leaving yourself to the whim of every case. And that's a terrible place to be, I think. And so I've chosen to adopt for myself uh, an originalist judicial philosophy, which means that um, when, I, when, I, when I look at the Eighth Amendment, uh, I, I, first, of course, I, 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 am, I recognize that as a state judge, even as a state high court judge, I do not have the ultimate authority to interpret the Eighth Amendment, right? So if the US Supreme Court has spoken and they are the ultimate authority on the meaning of the Eighth Amendment, um, and they have said that the Eighth Amendment means one thing, then I'm just not at liberty to say that it means something else because they rank higher <laughs> in the spectrum of authority with regard to the Eighth Amendment than I do. But if I am examining the Eighth Amendment um, on a case of, of first impression that the United States Supreme Court has not yet weighed in on, then what I would ask myself with regard to those questions that Harold brought up about cruel and unusual, aren't those things that can change over time? I would say, well, yeah, they do have the potential to change over time, but what we ought to be doing is trying to ask ourselves, because those were the words that were chosen by the drafters of the Constitution 
what would those words have meant to an ordinary person at the time that they were written, right? And so, I mean, you can extrapolate off of that and, and decide whatever you think about, you know, the modern arguments against the death penalty. But, but that's my point of view is I'm, I would be searching for what those words would have meant to an ordinary person who would have read them at the time that they were written. Uh, I think that it's not a good idea for us to, uh, you know, follow along with this, this idea of reinterpreting the words in light of the meaning that they have today, because that means that, that I, if you call it culture, culture sometimes changes the meaning of words in very profound ways. And uh, if, if we allow that to happen, then we're saying that the Constitution can literally be amended by the culture. <laughs> and that's a scary thing to think about. I mean, the Constitution has language in it telling us how it should be changed and if and when it can be changed. And so we ought to stick to that language. If, if they meant anything when they put that language in about how to change it, then they, they must have meant that it is to some degree, a static enterprise at the time of its drafting. I will say, I mean, the, our next topic. Yeah, that's been my, that's been my, I think, biggest, <laughs> pardon? No, I was gonna say, I mean, that, that perfectly ties into our next topic, but you, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I was going to bring up. <laughs> it's it's a little tricky when there, you know there's a three second delay between each of us, so. Right. But um, one our, day we'll have a studio. Then we'll be. Here's to hoping. <laughs> hey, you could get backgrounds and and join me in this massive library. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine's the. I'm at my kitchen table, but. Uh, the next topic I wanted to kind of bring up was there's been a lot of discussion with the addition of ACB and Kavanaugh into the Supreme Court about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which we kind of discussed it in my law school classes, but it, it's something that I feel like the majority of legal scholars feel is something that cannot be overturned the way we think it will be. Uh, and, and I said this in a, in a job interview a while ago, and I did not get this job for this, but uh, I said, <laughs> I think the best thing a state could do to help end abortion would be to legally define life on a different standard than what it is right now. Because as of right now, it's the light of day standard. You know, once the baby is born, then they become a U.S. citizen, then they become, or then they get all the rights. And that is more or less when, when we see them as human. Uh, but states like Kentucky, who did the heartbeat you know, and that's where that's where they legally define life. So I, I feel like that is the one way we're going to be able to over. It's not really overturned, but reinterpret Roe v. Wade. Uh, what say you? I, 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 let me let me just start by reading to you um, the definition of an individual uh, that's in our penal code. Okay. Okay. So this is our Texas penal code because again, a murder is uh, the intentional knowingly causing the death of an individual, right? right? So in Texas, our current law says individual means a human being who is alive, including an unborn child at every stage of gestation from fertilization until birth. Yeah. And so that's the way Texas law is defined right now. It's been that way for, it was amended, you know, some years ago uh, after, certainly after Roe versus Wade, certainly during my career, I can't remember the exact year that it was enacted that way. But, um, but that's what our current law says right now. And, and you mentioned uh, kind of a, a thought that uh, Roe versus Wade, Wade would not be overruled in the way in which people think it would. I'm not sure how to understand that uh, because you know, from time to time, US Supreme Courts, the US Supreme Court does overrule opinions just dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know whether they will uh, in this particular case. They certainly have had opportunities to in the past, even with uh, judges appointed by conservative Republicans, uh, and uh, they have not done so. Uh, but I don't think that, they're, that they, we could say for sure that they won't just overrule it outright. But, but I think the consequences of that, if they did choose to do that, W might not be what people would think, right? Because a, right. a lot of people think that if the Supreme Court were to overrule Roe versus Wade just outright, 
that that would suddenly make abortion instantly illegal all over the whole country <laughs> and and with you know just utterly and that's not the case that's not how it works i mean what the close previous, to how it works <laughs> right previous to the decision in roe versus wade there were states with laws that prohibited abortions uh and i think there were some that prohibited it in certain circumstances and so forth so uh those laws many of them since roe versus wade have been repealed and replaced with statutes that sometimes permit it and sometimes uh, uh, place certain restrictions on it. Uh, and um, so all those laws would still be in place. Um, and so, you know, there, where, it, it, where it is legal now, it would likely remain legal if until state legislatures, if they did decide to, came in and actually passed laws to restrict it some more. Um, but the overruling of Roe versus Wade itself would have, an, at least in my view, probably not a terribly dramatic effect on the sta status quo, except for that it would create the conditions where states could come in and create more restrictions than it currently exist. Because all overturning Roe would do is throw the question then back to the states and allow them to legislate further than i guess the um what's this what's the standard put forth in casey where it, it's an undue burden it's undue burden. it would just it would just allow states to go past the undue burden standard so it really the states like california that want a looser um abortion restrictions and states like well can't really say texas louisiana and uh, Mississippi that want tighter abortion restrictions could have tighter abortion restrictions, even going to the point of outlawing it. So all Roe did was nationalize the conversation. It didn't like do anything really to overtly make it legal on the uh, on the state by state basis. It just made it legal na nationwide. So Harold, are you also either a law student or a lawyer? No, I, I, that's the one reason why I didn't uh, want to go to law school with said is because I don't want to be a lawyer. So that's, I mean, I, I know enough to like get by in a conversation with someone, with someone of your stature, but not enough to do anything like to, for a job. <laughs> well, no, that's It's impressive that, you know, the undue burden standard, I guess, uh, where, where, where would you have uh, occasion to come across that just in the media reporting or. Uh, just I, I listen to a lot of uh, um, political and legal um, theory, radio podcasts, watch videos, read books. That's, That's it's my, it's my favorite type of thing. So oh, good for you. That's wonderful. Yeah, you could have been top of my class. So well, I but the problem is I don't want to work <laughs> as a lawyer. You can teach. So Sebastian, is that what is that what you were trying to get at when you said that it might not be overruled in the way? Right, right. I, yeah. I, I think there's a general idea uh, that people think if we just overturn Roe v. Wade, it's going to solve all of our problems, and I, I, I kind of disagree with that. I, like as we said, it might cause more problems, it might cause less problems. It's just kind of, kind of unclear. Uh, well, I can guarantee, I you know, as as my my colleague Judge Kiesler says, you know. Supreme Court, they, when they when they choose to, to make a decision, they don't always provide you all the parameters. And so they, right. they make a decision and then it takes years and years to see how that decision right. plays out um, in the courts down below. And so you know, you're right about that. We, you know, the, the effects of that would be something that would have to be examined over the course of years to even know what direction they would go in, you know? Right. Right. So the, the Supreme Court basically sets the battlefield, whereas the, the yeah. lower courts are what, who actually determines what the law is going to look like. Sometimes, sometimes. I honestly think that was the most stressful part of law school was reading the same case interpreted differently, depending on what year it was. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> like, well, we you wonder know, why I didn't want to go. It's weird. <laughs> we, we, I mean, we read a case in California about, uh, I mean, for, for more sensitive viewers, this might be a little bit much, but a story about a mother who um, was pregnant and then it was, the husband somehow found out that it wasn't his. So he came and beat her until she had a uh, forced miscarriage. And the California court was like, hmm, that's, that's wrong. 
we should not allow this. And then two years later, they, uh, according to my teacher, they went to the uh, light of day standard where they're like, well, unless we can prove that the baby was alive post-birth, then there really isn't any rights for them pre-birth. And it's just kind of, it's just trying to read and figure out what the hell everyone's talking about. <laughs> well, <laughs> and then, you know, again, go and take a look at our Texas statutes, you know, because yeah. there, there are, we, I have seen cases and I don't really want to get too deep into it because we still get cases on these questions, but, right. but there are cases that come to our court involving prosecutions for murder uh, that involve the death of uh, preborn children. So right. something that, uh, you know, at least in Texas, we've seen those cases and have had some challenges on the, uh, you know, surrounding that issue. So, right. And I think kind of keeping on the abortion topic, the, what was the town in South Texas that said they became a sanctuary city for no abortions? Or they uh, it was the, East Texas. It was East Texas? Was I believe. Mm. They just, they banned it in their it town was, it altogether. Wasn't a town, it, was a, it was a county that uh, put out a county ordinance. Mm. Um, I want to say it was a county that, uh, like that bordered Louisiana. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Maybe Orange County. I, I believe so. Yeah, because it was they didn't want people uh, coming from because Louisiana um, tightened their abortion restrictions. They didn't want people traveling from Louisiana to their county to have abortions. I so see. they tightened it up like uh, on a county level. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I wish there was more stories about it because I, when I tried to research it before this, it, I found like the one news article that said they did it, and then nobody wrote about it again. <laughs> I think it got, yeah, it, I don't know how those uh, sanctuary city for the unborn cases would, because that, that would have to uh, go against the, the undue burden standard. So I don't know how that they would, it would stick around past a, a district court, but that's I'm obviously a case. I'm not going to weigh probably, in on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's exactly. That's something that you can't weigh in on, so which is perfectly fine. <laughs> But uh, yeah, kind of, kind of moving forward a little bit. Uh, there's also a lot of talk. You know, the the session for Texas is coming up soon, and the big question at the RPT was constitutional carry. Will it pass? Will we even get a bill this year? What's going to happen with that? I, I want to say that that's something I am extremely excited for. I, I spoke last year uh, or last summer at the uh, Committee of State Affairs. And I kind of, I was a little sarcastic and I was like, I, I just want to say thank you to the committee for allowing me to pay $40 to have my rights uh, and carry a gun. <laughs> I got, I got a lot of look from Mr. Hughes. So that was, <laughs> that was a good one. But that is something I, I, I happen to agree with. Uh, and I think Tripp feels the same. Where, really? You never know these days, Trip. <laughs> but I think I, I want constitutional carry to pass. I think it would do a lot good, a lot of good, keeping with the original text of the Constitution. You know, the the any any law passed on guns is an infringement, technically, isn't it not? Or is it not? In, yeah, it, oh, I I don't know if uh, Mr. Yeri can comment on on this. So I, I'm I'd like to. <laughs> mentioned yeah i think constitutional carries should be mandated by the supreme court already and the fact that they haven't taken a case in when they've had the new jersey case and the and the new york case which i can't think of the actual names uh for them that were so perfect gun cases for them to take and the fact that they didn't take them was egregious for these past two uh supreme court sessions and it angered me to know to, to the nth degree upon uh, listening to that and reading about that on uh, SCOTUS blog. That, that's a great Twitter account. Uh, yeah. But I, I, if you don't mind, I'll weigh in just with a, a thought here. And that is yeah. that, you know, um, we sh I, don't, I don't think people should be so quick to judge the courts for what cases they, they decide because they, for example, at least at the intermediate appellate court level, they don't have a a choice about which cases to decide. They, there's a mandatory right to appeal. So, you know, anyone in Texas who has a, an argument to make about the constitutionality of Texas's laws, 
uh, that, that lead to their conviction, then they can challenge that law on direct appeal. And the Court of Appeals pretty much is required to provide some answer to them on the question that's presented. Now, at the higher courts, we do have discretion uh, about which cases to take and which cases not to take in some instances. And so when we have that discretion, we try to, to look at the cases a little bit more in depth before we decide to grant review, not necessarily because of some sort of political reason uh, to take or not to take the issue presented, but, but a lot of times um, courts, like I said, courts don't get to pick their cases they ordinarily. So when we look at a case, even one that's coming to us on discretionary review, if I were to think, you know, that's a, a great issue and the court ought to take it and resolve the issue, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I can, I can reach the issue because there has to be a lot of other things that have been done in the courts below to prepare that case to give me the right to then address it. And what I mean is um, somebody has to have actually raised the right question in the trial court ordinarily, right? Uh, we say that, you know, you, in order to complain about something on appeal, you ordinarily have to object to the trial court and give the trial court an opportunity to make that legal ruling. And if you didn't do that the first time you had the opportunity to do so, well, then you've waived that right. You, you know, you, could, you can waive the right to give, you can waive many rights that are guaranteed by the constitution. So you can waive the right, for example, to a jury trial. You know, the constitution guarantees you if you're indicted, you have the right to have a jury of your peers sit in the box and decide your case, but you can give up that right, the, the courts have said, and you can plead guilty to the crime instead. Uh, you know, so we, we are looking at a lot of things that don't always just involve the legal issue that's presented. There has to be somebody, for example, who's bringing the complaint who can actually articulate a, an injury to themselves not to somebody else. You can't sort of, I can't just sue on behalf of my fellow citizens in Texas and say, oh, well, my fellow citizens aren't having their rights honored <laughs> because, you know, I don't represent them. <laughs> I represent me and my interest. And, and that's how the courts look at it. So um, that's what we, th that particular issue would involve something that the courts call standing, right? Uh, that, was the issue that, with, that was the issue with the, uh, um, the recent Texas uh, lawsuit dealing with election stuff was Texas. Texas citizens don't have standing against Pennsylvania citizens in the election matter. So that was the that was that whole kerfuffle. I, I, that's that's my recollection of what I heard as well. Yeah. So, so standing. It's also, it's also good that we have someone like you on who can actually inform us that <laughs> no, you got to have an issue come up to the court that we can comment on instead of just instead of just letting my firebrand. I want guns everywhere <laughs> ramblings to go on. So thank you for actually saying that. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I, I, I get a little passionate when it comes to guns and everything. So it's good to have someone to temper, say, oh, slow down now. It's especially important for the courts to, you know, sort of be restrained in that way. Um, because, you know, if we had, let's say, what would happen if you had a bunch of judges on the, the high courts that, that really did not agree with you <laughs> on a lot of things, right? right. So then, you know, you, they, they, I suppose they, there's not a whole lot that would stand in the way of, of a, a willing U.S. Supreme Court justice from doing a lot of things. But, but certainly, it, it, I think everybody is more comfortable uh, believing that we live in a land ruled by law and not by men. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have judges who, who, who are uh, just utterly unrestrained in their capacity to just declare things to be legal or not legal, constitutional, or not constitutional, then, you know, that's, that's much more of a, a, a tyrannical regime than a, than a court of justice. So. Yeah. yeah that, 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 that would be uh, un, very poor if we didn't have uh, certain standing laws and, and the things that sort of restrict the court to stay within its bounds and everything. Cause I can see you, just how you described, I can see that, just flowing out of proportion and everything and uh, in a similar way to sort of executive orders in the in the executive branch where it just it, it allowing allowing it to just uh, snowball forth and just if someone gets in that you don't like then they can just push things that you don't want. And I can I can see that totally. 
So I guess I cannot ask my next question if we couldn't <laughs> talk about the last one. Because um, we did we did kind of talk about it in law school, and I did want to get somebody else's opinion, but I understand that, you know, with, with your position, there's certain things. It's not that you can't talk about it. Just, well, it's not that I it's not that I don't have opinions or beliefs. It's just that right. sometimes when you're sitting as a judge at the current moment, it's just right. better not to sort of just say, hey, this is what I think. Uh, you know, after all, we ought to let the political process take its course. That's yeah. what you know, being a free country is. People get to go to their, they don't, they don't have the right to come lobby me <laughs> to right. change the law, right. except the, unless they have standing and they bring a proper lawsuit and, you know, all those things occur. They have a right to go lobby their legislators, however. And so that's the right place for that to be done. Not, not for me to be, you know, spreading what I believe around the world. So I will say I'm excited that it took us almost 40 minutes before you said, I can't answer that when it took. <laughs> well, I do my best to provide an answer when I can, you know, and uh, but I, people know me, people know that I'm not, you know, an Uber right. liberal guy. I'm, I'm, I tend to be more of a conservative person. So that's it, not, I don't hide that part of me, you know. It just astonishes me that we made it longer than the Senate committee with <laughs> ACB before. <laughs> Two college hopefully, kids. Hopefully, that doesn't inure to, to, to my demise. <laughs> no, I, I would say 90% of our viewers, I would say 99% of our viewers are probably more conservative than I am. They, yeah. they, might, they might listen and get upset. I will say, I just got some demographics back, and we had 1% of our viewers were their gender was unclassified. So oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I'll just let you take that information for what it's worth. I don't, I have no idea what that means. To the to the zur out there. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hill Country Conservative. But kind of kind of wrapping up, I, I do want to talk yeah. about uh, textualism and originalism and mm-hmm. and how it how it intertwines with conservatism more than it does with others. Because in in school we were learning about how. Uh, RVG and uh, not Alito. Why can't I? I can't Scalia. 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 It's like I always, I always have a brain fart right when I'm about to say his name. But how RGB and Scalia actually agreed on a lot of issues, and and how she was more or less the textual originalist for the left-thinking ideology. And I don't know. I, I kind of want to hear y'all's thoughts on this. Well, you know, I, I'll say that I I, uh, I do remember I was preparing for a speech I was going to give at one point a couple of years back, and I came across a, a video of Elaine, Justice Elena Kagan on the U.S. Supreme Court, and she was uh, giving a speech talking about uh, the, the tremendous accomplishments of Justice Scalia, and one of the things she mentioned is that she said, we are all textualists now. And she said before he started uh, sort of bringing up the idea of textualism and originalism, that uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, very important legal thinkers in the, in the country, including law professors and judges, who had really lost touch <laughs> with the concept of, you know, making reference to the actual language, the text of the law and the Constitution. And so, um, you know, he was a, he has definitely someone who blazed a bright trail and, and on these questions of textualism, originalism. And I, I, I appreciated a great deal. I, I, I read his book. He has a book. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It might be behind me somewhere. Oh, here it is. I'm going to stand up just for a second. Are you referring matter, to called yes. a matter of interpretation. Yeah. And so I commend you to this book since you're in law school now. A Matter of Interpretation by Scalia. And what he does in that book, it's really not even a long book. I mean, it's more like a thick pamphlet, you know, 149 pages, I think, mm-hmm. of, of text. He, uh, he sets out his judicial philosophy, and then he invites, uh, you know, four or five other legal thinkers, law professors, judges, to weigh in, uh, in, in uh, you know, opposition to his position on his judicial philosophy. And then he gives a rebuttal at the end. And it's really quite good. I mean, it really is enlightening 
mm-hmm. to see that that the different perspectives that people have and why they have them, and, and even people who disagreed with Justice Scalia's philosophy, they 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 have frankly they're somewhat intriguing arguments, you know, to be made on that side. Although I don't think they're the right ones, <laughs> and I think Justice Scalia puts them rightly in their place. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even more so, there's been, and I'll kind of bring make you bring some awareness to you about this other sort of debate that's beginning, um, and we'll see where it goes. But I like mm-hmm. this discussion that's going on about judicial philosophy, and it has to do with um, something that happened. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my first experience with it. I have a my senior lawyer that works directly for me. I chose him because I've known him for a long time, and I trust him. And uh, I know that we can uh, vigorously discuss the law and still remain friends, even though he doesn't always agree with me. <laughs> you know, he's not a yes man when it comes to the law. And in fact, there's many issues upon which we have profound disagreements. But I really like having him work for me because he, you know, like they say, metal sharpens metal. And so we can really do that and put that to the test in my chamber. And we have had, like I said, numerous discussions about the law where at the end of the of the you know lengthy discussion, it, it, I finally realized that it comes down to him saying, "Well, judge, the opinion says this, the controlling opinion in his view," and I say to him, "Well, but the the statute says this, <laughs> and those don't necessarily align in my mind." So on one occasion, I said to him, "Well, Gary, the opinion is not the law." <laughs> And, and he sat back in his chair, very proud of himself, and cocked his head and looked at me and said, well, judge, you're the only person in the world who believes that, <laughs> that the opinion is not the law. And for just a minute, I felt very, very lonely. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I said, you know, I, I, you haven't persuaded me that the opinion is the law, and I still think the statute is the, the law that I ought to be focused on. Well, so fast forward now about, you know, six or seven months from then, I was reading the hand downs from the United States Supreme Court. There's an opinion from the Supreme Court called Gamble versus the United States. Uh, and I think it was a double jeopardy case of some kind where Justice Thomas, who I have great respect for, I think he's so underestimated as, as a justice. I, I, I think in the years to come that, you know, as, as, as I become an old lawyer and fade off into the sunset, Thomas's opinions are going to be just, uh, you know, people are going to find them <laughs> at some point and say, wow, this was so perfect. But he, uh, he wrote in this opinion, in a side opinion, he was agreeing um, with the majority. Uh, and, and he said that we really ought to reconsider uh, the doctrine of stare decisis in terms of how it works right the right way in the American system of law. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I also commend the Gamble versus United States opinion and particularly Justice Thomas's opinion in that case to you, because when I saw that opinion, I sent it off to my staff attorney, Gary, and, and uh, with a little note, and he promptly replied, well, I guess you're not the only one in the world who believes that opinions are not the law. It just <laughs> so, so happens the other one is the form, one of the foremost legal scholars in the, in, in the world. So <laughs> and I had a, I had a, so anyway, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I was say I had a professor. Well, Say the same thing to me, you know. Your, your opinion's not the law. <laughs> I, I had a. Uh, that's an interesting area. Is that um, that's the, one of the few areas where Scalia and Thomas disagree was, was like an actual disagreement was on stare decisis, and I and part of it I think goes back to uh, I would think part of it maybe goes back to a bit of something to deal with race because Scalia was a, I mean, Italian-American, Scalia was white, Clarence Thomas obviously black, and Clarence Thomas growing up was like, well, look, if stare decisis judged everything we had and we had to look by it, then slavery and all Jim Crow would (laughs) stay around versus, and I can kind of, I see that argument. I'm like, well, yeah, bad law is bad law. And just because it's, just because it is law doesn't mean that if a case comes back up to you that deals with the same thing, you should have to abide by it if it is unconstitutional, which I, I, I always liked that from Thomas a little more than that's what edged Thomas out above Scalia when I was reading him in undergrad and everything. So that was, it's interesting where you can have two very conservative justices 
that disagree on one little thing and that's and and split off a little bit well it's it's not a little thing it's a big deal but, you know, yeah it, yeah not one little it, thing one major it, it, point in, <laughs> and in a way you know i i i, I the more i the more I look into that issue, the more I, I tend to agree with what Justice Thomas's position is in, in this whole issue. And that is that, look, if our, if our job is to sort of defend the, the Constitution and laws, we're not taking an oath to defend the opinions of the court. <laughs> you know, right. We're taking an oath to defend the Constitution and laws. And if an opinion leads to a conclusion that is, that is contrary to what is required by the law or the Constitution, the law and the Constitution ought to win every time, right? And so, uh, you know, what, the way other thing I, it's important to say here is that I, I do believe that opinions, particularly from higher courts, are entitled to respect and to deference because, you know, um, no, number one, we, we always should presume that uh, judges who have uh, worked on an issue and, and studied a, a particular legal uh, legal provision, we should presume that they're act that they acted in good faith, right? That should be the presumption anyway at the outset. And then second, uh, we should always remember that uh, the judicial the judicial branch of government or Department of Government as what we call it in Texas is a hierarchical system, right? So uh, for example, if Court of Criminal Appeals says, you know, the death penalty is unconstitutional. Well, I don't, the lower courts don't really have the authority then to disagree with us about that because we're the top, we're the pinnacle on that question. Now we haven't done that. I don't want to make anybody say yeah. <laughs> we have not done that. But my point is, is that we have to understand that there is a ranking order in terms of judicial decision-making. And, and, and we also ought to uh, have respect and deference for the judges that have, have addressed an issue before we have, but our ultimate, um, our ultimate sort of duty and obligation is not to those opinions that came before, but to the law and the constitution itself. That's where our, we need to, it, once we rightly align ourselves in that direction, and part of what I think may have caused us to develop this sickness, if you will, where we think differently sometimes, is that uh, we came out of a system, a common law system. I mean, that, that's where, that, that's the, the genesis of the American system of justice. Sort of, we, we started with that sort of understanding of how it all works. But then we wrote this constitution. You we know? wrote and, down our laws. It's no, we, exactly. We, we said, we, we, we divided the powers of government. You know, we said, look, it, the legislative branch has this power, executive branch has this power, and the judicial branch we gave very little authority. I mean, and, and you know, I can, I would be happy to talk about that with anybody who wants to argue differently, but <laughs> our authority is very limited. Our, we, all we do is, you know, the, I, I really like the, um, the people who have said that we, we should be like an umpire, you know, yeah. we're, we're not, we, we don't sort of create new rules in which there can be a strike. We call a strike based upon rules that are already there, you know, that were written by someone else. That's what we do. And then at the end of our decision-making process, we enter a judgment. Now that judgment is a legally enforceable judgment, whether you like it or not. And that's what the, that's where the power of the judiciary resides is in the power to enter a judgment and have that judgment be for enforceable according to the law, not in our ability to, you know, wax eloquently in a written opinion, trying to explain why we entered that judgment. Well, we got about 10 minutes left and uh, to kind of wrap things up. I want to take it from a more serious level down to a little bit more fun. And I, I was just interested, do you have a favorite uh, law school story or, or, you know, working as a lawyer, what your favorite story is? I, I, I love to hear these. I hear some crazy ones all the time. But I've had a I've had a wonderful and very colorful career. I had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of things. Probably, uh, the case that stands out to me the most is the deer case, <laughs> which I call it the deer case because it was, it happened when I was uh, a DA and I, I, I had been a DA in, in Houston and my wife had finished her, her, she's a pediatrician. She had finished her residency. We moved to San Antonio. Shortly after that, I began work at the Bear County DA's office in San Antonio. But years before I got there, 
there had been a lady who lived in a little town. You know how some big cities have smaller towns that are completely encircled by the bigger city. Mm -hmm. There's a town in, in, in the midst of San Antonio called Hill Country Village. And this, this town is made up of a bunch of, you know, very large acreage home sites. And uh, there are deer that roam, white-tailed deer that roam in this, in this city. Um, and they love it. The people that live there, they love their deer. And uh, there came a time when there was this one buck who was just an enormous animal. Uh, had, you know, Boone and Crockett raided horns, you know, with drop tines. And it was such a beautiful animal. I understand that people would travel hundreds of miles to see the deer. And one day the deer wound up in this lady's backyard who lived there and uh, she killed the deer. Uh, and she took the deer to a deer processing place and, and uh, the deer processor was just amazed. You know, he's, where did you kill this deer? And she said, oh, she made up a lie at that point. And she said, oh, it, it, I did it in the, at this one ranch over in Blanco County. And as I recall the story, the, the deer processor, he hunted the ranch next door to that, that same property that she described by luck, you know, and he's, and he said to himself, this lady did not kill that deer <laughs> on that ranch. I would know because I'm out there all the time. And so, uh, so he called parks and wildlife department who did an investigation and they, they uh, did an, a videotaped interview with her where she admitted that um, she shot it with a 22 <laughs> to begin with. Uh, and then it didn't die. So she went inside and got a butcher knife <laughs> to finish it off. So, and that becomes important later on. But so, so anyway, she, 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 the people of Hill Country Village were very upset and they talked to the DA and the DA decided to uh, engage in some creative prosecution and indicted her for something that they called felony theft of an animal from the people of the state of Texas. So they indicted her for a felony. Uh, they were, incidentally, there were numerous misdemeanors that they could have charged, but they didn't. They went for the bigger one. And that got litigated off and on for a number of years, eventually ending up in a dismissal of the, of the prosecutions altogether. Uh, and then at some point, uh, the lady and her lawyer came back to the trial court judge and filed a motion for the return of seized property. And to understand what that is, like, think of yourself, if you get prosecuted for a murder, right? And they seize your, your gun that you used in the killing and and then you get tried and you put on a self-defense, right, uh, argument. And the jury says not guilty. And at the end of that, you know, it's your gun. And obviously you didn't violate the law. The jury found otherwise. So you can file this motion to get your gun back. Well, what she did was she filed a motion for the return of the head, right? And I mean, this is a huge deer, right? And there's a lot of collectors out there of these mounts. So um, I read, I think, in the New San Antonio newspaper that there were collectors that would have paid a hundred thousand dollars or more for this wow. deer so it was obviously i mean it was a big deal deer yeah uh, like i said boone and crockett raided it was a big deal and uh so they filed this motion and they had a hearing and the trial court judge said no i'm not going to give you the deer head back you know <laughs> and uh so they appealed and the appeal got transferred we, we have this docket equalization thing there's 14 intermediate courts of appeals and sometimes some courts are busier than other courts and so the supreme court will send a case off to some county that's not where it originated. And so uh, they, they, they sent it off. I forget which, which court of appeals got it, but some other court of appeals not in San Antonio. And what they failed to do uh, is they, they sent the record of the case, but they didn't send a copy of that videotape interview where she admitted that she killed the deer with a 22 and a knife. And so the court of appeals didn't have that information and they said, no, you know what? Uh, the, the lady killed the deer and you should give the head back, right, to, to the lady. And she didn't get convicted, was their point. And uh, so about that time I got to the DA's office and my boss came and brought the big box and dropped the deer case on my desk and said, see what you can do about this. <laughs> and by that time, it was too late to ask the Court of Appeals to change its mind. But mm -hmm. there was still time to file a petition in whichever high court should get that type of a question. And, uh, you know, one, it was very unique to Texas, but I didn't know which court, frankly, to file my petition for discretionary review in because I know a criminal prosecution is a criminal case and the appeal should go to the Court of Criminal Appeals. But this was after the prosecution was over. It was a motion to basically get property back. 
And it, some some people might argue that sounds like very much like a civil case, you know, Pearson v. Post, right? So anyway, uh, long story short, I, I filed petitions for discretionary review in both one in the Supreme Court of Texas and one in the Court of Criminal Appeals and asked both courts who has jurisdiction of this case. And but I knew that I, I knew that I didn't really feel I didn't have confidence that either one of the courts would grant review because after all, it was kind of a one off case and, a, you know, nobody was really going to care about it except for the sort of storyline value of a dead deer. And um, so I was looking through the code and studying it and I came across this rule uh, that, that has since been repealed. But it, it, whenever you file a, a, a petition for discretionary review in the Court of Criminal Appeals, it gave the Court of Appeals a 30-day window to change their mind. <laughs> so it, it was called Rule 50D. So I, I filed a, a Rule 50D motion in the Court of Appeals and asked them to change their mind pursuant to that rule. And I attached a copy of the videotape statement where she admitted she killed it with a deer, I mean, with a, a, a 22 and a, and a butcher knife because those, the reason that they thought that she had, had, you know, she should have a right to the animal was because when you kill a deer in Texas and you do it in the right way, it becomes your property after, after it's dead. And that's, you can only make it become your property if you follow the administrative code. And the she administrative the wrong code, way. yes, that's right. The administrative code says, you know, you have to use a center fire rifle, <laughs> you know, Jesus. and instead she had used a 22, which is a, a rim fire rifle and a butcher knife. And neither of those are the right ways to make a wild animal your own property. So um, I was very fortunate. And in the end, uh, the Court of Appeals did change their mind. And so um, we won the case. The state of Texas got to keep the head. And then they put it on permanent loan to the city of Hill Country Village, who then uh, they wanted to mount it over the fireplace in their city hall. But the mantle was too high. <laughs> so when you put the deer up, the big deer was touching the ceiling, you know. They literally had to lower the mantle on the fireplace, <laughs> <laughs> and they put they put the deer up there on the fireplace. But but in the meantime, they had put the deer behind the mayor's seat, you know, where the mayor sits during meetings. And another little sort of side anecdote story to this is that at some time before they got the deer moved, one of their law enforcement officers out went into the city hall chambers and and uh, in committed suicide. Oh, wow. And right there with the deer behind him and all that. So it was kind of strange story. But uh, uh, ultimately, if you go to the city of Hill Country Village now, I think uh, if things are still the same as they were, you'll see the deer there. And I think they've named it Bucky. Uh, I remember the, the people of, city of Hill Country Village were very excited about the return of Bucky. Uh, the, the Parks and Wildlife Department put it on permanent loan to that city. And so it should be there still. I think we're going to have to do an episode there. <laughs> yeah. Would make sense. It's a great Texas story, isn't it? You know? Yeah, that is, yeah, that is. I was going. I was going to ask what's the weirdest case you had sort of heard of, and that perfectly answered that question too. So that. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, yeah, that totally tops the story I was going to tell. But <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Right when you said she said she killed it with a 22, I'm like, no, she didn't. A deer that big? No, she didn't. <laughs> When I knew someone whose whose grandfather told me that he was looking for a deer one time, and the deer just happened to hop out of a bush, and he stabbed it with a pocket knife. I don't believe him. I don't no. either. You know, Pixar didn't happen, but yeah. Just, but hey, did you ever see the movie um, The Edge with Anthony Hopkins? I, I have no idea. I think oh, I it's did. a great movie. I, 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 another thing that I'm uh, sorry to keep telling you things that you have oh, to do, yeah. read, watch, <laughs> oh, no, but the edge is a great movie. And, and there's a scene in that movie where one of the characters uh, has to fight a bear to the death. And uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting technique. I won't tell you in advance because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, it's, it, it's worth a watch. <laughs> because you mentioned that just because you mentioned the, the fighting a bear, there is a contest <laughs> in, in Russia where it is, how many times can you stab a bear before it mauls you to death? <laughs> oh, God. And well, some, I don't know how you win that. <laughs> you, you, get you, the, win? you get the most amount of stabs. The record for like 20 years was 11. And then someone in 2018 beat that by like 20 stabs. 
Wow. Yeah, but in the end, the bear mauls you to death, right? Yeah, no, they, like that's the whole point. I the prize. <laughs> Dude, this is their version of the death penalty. Up there. They, 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 don't have, they don't have an Eighth Amendment, so they can make you do this. Well, yeah. you know, that's then it's full circle because... Yeah, it all comes full circle. Before William the Conqueror, I think, you know, we had trials by, by what did they call it? Um, combat. Combat. Trial, combat, right. Yeah. yeah. Bring that by Ordeal. That's what I think. They, trial right. by ordeal of some kind. You know, throw a, you in the water with bricks tied to you and see what if you if you sink then you're innocent <laughs> yeah the witch the witch there was a guy in uh in great britain who i think got a parking ticket and tried to argue it by trial by combat <laughs> <laughs> and the magistrate said just pay the ticket <laughs> that is one thing that i love about them having common law still yeah. is that i could there could be a judge who's like yeah all right bring out the police right. fight it out yeah. well i'm not going to judge that case before it comes to me how about that right that's, that's <laughs> you know one day i hope i i get to sit in front of you and say sir my client <laughs> he uh, he wants a trial by comp he read some obscure law you have to allow it but <laughs> all right y'all i think we're going to end the show there uh Mr. Yuri, it was, a, it was a pleasure having you on. This is one of the most fun shows we've done. Uh, <laughs> Informative and funny. Yeah. That's what you get. Yeah. This was great. We're, gonna, we're definitely going to have to have you come back on eventually. Um, but I just want to say before you go, Merry Christmas. Thank you for coming. Thank and, you, and, and, a, and a happy new year. To all of those listening, you can find us on Facebook at the Hill Country Conservative. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram under the same name. Uh, and uh, yeah. Y'all have a happy Wednesday. Thank you all. Merry Christmas. God bless. Oh, thank you.